Welcome back to the Todd Duncan Podcast. A member of the industry syndicate. This is where success happens. Todd's goal is to transform your business and life through deeper connections, higher trust, and proven strategies to help you win and give you your best life ever. Here's your host, Todd Duncan. So, um, corner store to corner office, and uh, the Xerox career is is obviously taking off. One of the things that I think is is super relevant to this group and, and obviously to business is the story of building sales teams yes. and, and the whole culture mm-hmm. that was about winning. Right. Talk to that, because everybody here needs to build a winning dream team. Yes. May I tell two stories, yeah, Todd? Sure. So I'm going to give you one that was kind of like the really young me, 24 years old, getting my first sales team. Um, you know, you, you're performing extremely highly in these sales jobs, and then lo and behold, someone taps you on the shoulder and said, would you like to have a career in management? And I, I fought to have a career in management. The book tells the whole story. I'm sure I don't have enough time to give you all the details. But suffice it to say, because I wanted it more, I outpaced a lot of people that were more senior than me, that probably were more prepared for the management position than me, but they didn't want it more than I did. I end up getting the job. Again, I always try to be very authentic in terms of what I know and what I don't know. And I think it's so important for your followers to respect you as so honest about what you know and what you don't know. So I tried to stick to my strengths. And my strength was I want to teach them everything I know about sales. And there are certain things that I'm not that good at. Like, I really don't like writing gorgeous memos, especially at that time. I'm really not so big on sort of like the canvassing art form. I'm more the the brute force, give it up with everything you have. So not the tracking and the meticulous organizing. That's not me. But I found somebody who could do something in every position of sales excellence, and I had identified about 10 things that needed to go extremely well. So I was the leader, and then I created mini teams. So Todd, for example, if you were my leader and I was a mini you, you might have put me in a certain position because I had a skill you didn't have. And then I would have three or four people reporting into that individual. And then I would rotate these teams every 90 days. So by the end of a year, everybody knew a lot about sales, sales management, and the art and the discipline of preparation and execution to be the ultimate sales professional. Not because I was the best at everything, of course I wasn't, but because collectively we had that among us. And I had this theory of discretionary effort. And the idea, you know, you know the sales routine, right? So you'll have a sales team and there'll always be a few people that are kind of the anchors on the team. And the modern technology says, hey, we dump the five or 10% at the bottom and we move on. That's horrible. And that culture is horrible. We're better than that. We have to teach the five or 10%. It's the real winners and the great leaders that can make them average. You're never gonna make them the best. You're not gonna make them Darren. You're not gonna make them Todd, but you can get them in the range where they can be successful. So my goal for that team was every single person goes to the winner's circle or the president's club, we called it. We had a wall of goals where you put your top three goals on the wall. 
we had the bell, and every time somebody hit the bell, that meant they hit one of their major goals. And the joy and the celebration that one had for another as they succeeded was palpable. The bell. <laughs> and on the weekends, we would do things as a team, and we would go on outings. We were young, and not everybody had families at the time and stuff, so we'd go to the Jersey Shore, we'd go to Long Island, or I'd all have, have them all out at my house. One time, I had just got this house in Long Island, and it was August. I didn't have much at the time. I only had a picnic table that was wooden in the dining room, and I had a bedroom that was all the furniture I had. So with no air conditioning in the house and a very hot summer day, everybody chose to sleep in my bedroom because that's where the air conditioner was. The next day I wake up with three or four women in my bed and they look at me the next day and they say, thank you, God, I think I just got a promotion. Now, nothing happened, <laughs> but it just gives you a feeling for how loose and organized we were. And of course, things have changed a lot since then. But <laughs> innocence, and innocence doesn't go very far these days. But we had that kind of team. We were that close. So I took this to Puerto Rico. I had at the time gotten now into probably my, just right up around 30 years old. I'm newly married with a baby and I get this chance to go to Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And we had 86 operations that were stack ranked in, in Xerox. And Puerto Rico was dead last. Dead last. So I didn't know if they were considering me for a promotion to flatter me <laughs> or basically say nobody else wants it so let's see what he can do with it. But at any rate, I go there, I meet the people. I say to my wife, you trust me on this? We're gonna to move to Puerto Rico with the newborn baby and we're gonna start a life here and we're gonna turn this place around and make him a winner. It's got all the makings, we can do it. She trusts me, of course we go. And people say now, how did you take them from last to first in one year? And I'll tell you exactly how it was. You listen to the people, because the people always know. I asked the people for two weeks, I interviewed them all, why are you all so messed up? How can you be last? It's hard to be last so consistently. What is your worst practices that's making you so bad? Let's just get it all on the table. So it, it basically came down to, you know, the typical thing where management doesn't get it. They're cutting expenses. God forbid you should have water. God forbid we should spend money on donuts and make people happy. And for goodness sake, let's not fuel anybody to travel and see customers. We've got to cut back on that budget. Let's all stay in the office and do nothing. We're, we're, we're good at that. Um, so it had a loser written all over it, but it had potential. So essentially, after the two weeks, I formulate the vision based on what the people said we needed to do. And very interesting. And I delivered this to them in Spanish. And about every five sentences, they crack up laughing, which means I was screwing up the words and they found it to be quite hysterical. But it came down to three things. The people said, number one, I need a vision for what it is you want us to do. Where are we going? Number two, I want motivation. Yeah. I want to be inspired when I go to work. I don't want to be depressed. And number three, and this was the interesting one, 
because it was actually more important than number one or two. <laughs> we want our Christmas party back. We love to dance in Puerto Rico. And we want Gilbertito Santa Rosa, who was the number one salsa singer in Puerto Rico, <laughs> to entertain us. Okay, that's cool. I internalized all this, I came back, and I let them know when I got to number three that I had called Gilbertito and secured a contract with him, and he was gonna play at the El San Juan Hotel at a black tie affair. And it was this date on the calendar, and everybody was gonna be dressed to the nines, and we were gonna have the greatest time of our lives. And people rose. They went crazy. Meanwhile, we hadn't even done anything yet. They went crazy. <laughs> this is the best, Puno, sir, you know, you're the greatest. And then I said, hold on. There's only one catch. There's nothing noble about dancing to Hilbertito or anyone else unless you dance as the best in the world. So we're gonna go from last to first, and we're gonna do it this year. Well, Todd, all the air, <laughs> woo, the oxygen gone. It's like, I was thinking this guy was cool for a while, but this ain't gonna work, you know? All of a sudden, he kinda like wrecked my good day. And I said, no, 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 cool out. You just gotta trust me, and I gotta trust you. And all I ask, is that you give it your absolute positive best effort. And if you follow this plan, we're gonna get it done this year. So we start watching the stacks. By the middle of the year, we were in the middle of the pack. By the third quarter, we were coming around the turn like sea biscuit. And now we were in the top five. We actually beat the perennial number one that fourth quarter and became the number one business in the world for Xerox. Wow. Last to first. So, and this is, this, is, this is why what you do matters. I went back after 22 years, this past um, January, after seeing my son attending an Ivy League school and spending a weekend with him in Boston, thinking to myself, my God, how the generations have evolved in the McDermott family. <laughs> and I flew to Puerto Rico, and I had a speech to do the next day, and a couple of colleagues said, you know, Bill, we'd love to see you for a little get-together, dinner. You know, I figured a table of four or so. I go by the Candina Reef, which was the condominium we lived in, in Condado uh, Beach in Puerto Rico. I literally wanted to kiss the ground because I loved it so much. It was so gorgeous, they did a great job, they kept it just as beautiful as it was. Then I go and I remembered pushing, you know, Michael and his baby carriage and all the things that comes over a father. I go to the restaurant and I walk in and it's dark, very quiet, I'm like, oh boy, I don't think anyone showed up tonight, this is gonna be, this is gonna be a quick dinner, you know? And all of a sudden the lights go on, the place was packed. Everybody from that team, was there. They bought the place out, they paid for it with their own money, and once again, we laughed, we cried, we looked at pictures, we told stories about our lives and our kids and our spouses and significant ones, and we were a family. And not a day had passed in 22 years. Why is it that what we do actually counts? It counts because of the enduring friendships you're able to build, the memories that you have, 
And when you give everything you have, and everybody else does too, you hit that high note. And still to today, people that were a part of that experience, they talk about it, they write about it, they live it, and it's a part of our soul. And I think that's why I have endured a long-standing career because I really love those moments, I love the people, and I live for achieving things that last a lifetime. Yeah. <clears throat> what a story. And, and I want all of you to be thinking, yeah, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I think, I mean, for me, it's so powerful that it took vision, it took uh, caring, yes. it, took, uh, it took celebration at some point in, in the distant future, but it had a start and it had a finish. Yes. And all the way up in 12 months. Exactly. That, that tells us what we can do, right? If we really focus in, we really understand the power of leadership, the power of like that question. There's only two things last night I said to you that are really super important. One is where you are, and, and the second is where are you going? Exactly. And you had to answer that question at Xerox. I mean, yes. uh, as you kind of scaled up the ranks and everything, yeah. um, uh, you had to start making decisions about your career, and, uh, and there was directions you could go and didn't go. And I think, I think this, there's this interesting thing you talk about, Thunderbolts. Yes. And uh, walk us through that. Walk us through that journey. Yeah. I mean, there are things that just hit you, right? So um, at the time, I had become the youngest division president in Xerox. I was now in my mid-30s, a corporate officer. You know, and you say people like corporate officer, they don't even have this kind of stuff anymore. I, I, I always make sure I look to my left now. I, I really know you're there, and I love looking at you. So don't forget that. If I leave you a little bit, just say, Bill, we're over here, man. Um, but um, what was amazing is, you know, I'm in my mid-30s now, and I had been there 17 years, and corporate officer basically means as long as you hang till you're like 55, we give you the top five earning years ever, all up, all in, in perpetuity for the rest of your life and your spouse's life. So it's a pretty significant thing to make that in your mid-30s. But at the time, I was like watching the company's strategy, and I wasn't the CEO, so I wasn't deciding on the strategy, but I knew that people weren't going to buy document appliances. Nobody was buying boxes. They were buying solutions and ultimately they wanted a service. Like they don't want to worry about the copy machine or the high-speed printer or all that. They want that to be seamlessly integrated into what it is they do. So I saw this vision for the digital document. My division was growing at 50% a year. The core business was down 10% a year. Yet senior management was trying to harvest margins because when you change to a services business model, you don't get that high octane right. profit dropping to the bottom line on sale. You get it over an extended life of a contract. But that's the way the customer wanted it. And believe me, ladies and gentlemen, in the end, the customer and the customer alone determines whether or not your strategy wins or loses. And anybody that ever went against the customer with mm. their strategy always loses. So just take your pain early and get on with it. Don't try to fight the customer and what they want. Give them what they want. Cannibalize yourself, change your model, and be a leader. So I recognized that this was going to go on for a while. The other thing is, at some point, you have to change, right? Because I'm like, 
Sure, I want to be the CEO of Xerox. It was a 21-year-old dream. But on the other hand, the economy was changing. The internet was on the move. It was a digital world. And I felt that I needed to learn. So I made a decision to become the president of Gartner Group at the time. But leaving something I love so much, candidly, I never was divorced because I'm um, very fortunate to have met the woman of my dreams and have two of the greatest kids in the world. So I really can't speak from a position of authority, but I can tell you leaving Xerox felt like it must have been how some people feel when they get a divorce. I was so empty. I missed everybody so much. It was so much a part of my soul and my life because everything I do, I take it really deep and I feel it really deep. And I'd be in these hotel rooms like all alone in a new place without everything I knew for 17 years was hard. But on the other hand, I knew I needed to do it. And I no sooner got the big house on the hill and the big presidential job and the great comp plan and all the things that you fight for your whole life. And then my wife is in her mid-30s and she's hit with breast cancer. And I have two little kids and it's very scary, very scary. And all of a sudden you realize, you know, the career thing is important. Being the best professionally is really important. But when it comes to your family and health issues, everything else pales in comparison. And I was there with my wife through the whole thing. One day I'm in the hospital at Sloan Kettering. My wife's going in for surgery. And I got the private room. You know, I took out the visa card. I went for it. Um, and I'm like, I'll stay with you for the duration. And I'm pacing the halls of Sloan Kettering. And this priest comes up to me. And he says, you know, what are you in for? And I say, well, Father, you know, here's a story with my wife. And then I ask him what he's in for. And he tells me, well, you know, I'm very close to the New York City Fire Department and the Police Department, and one of my strong friendships is with this colleague that has cancer, and, you know, I'm, I'm here to support him. I'm like, oh, God bless you, you know. We kind of break huddle. And he's got these gorgeous Paul Newman piercing blue eyes and the sweetest man and just really an uplifting conversation. My wife comes out of surgery. She's in post-op sleeping and I'm right by her bedside, and the nurse says, you know, Mr. McDermott, there's a priest that wants to see you. And of course, you know, I don't put one and one together right away, and I'm like, okay, you know, let him come in. So he comes in, and it was him. And he comes over to my wife's bedside, and he leans right over her face, within an inch of her face, puts the cross on her, and says a really impassioned prayer. And she wakes up looking, at those beautiful blue eyes. And comes in and out of her anesthesia. He tells me, I wanna go for a walk with you. We go for a walk in the hallway of the hospital. And he says, your wife is gonna be fine. And I said, Father, you know, how do you know? And he points to the sky. And he basically says, I got friends in high places. And I said, um, I'll take it. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? And we break huddle. Next thing he comes back. Four days later, Julie's going to check out the next day or something. And he comes at like 9.30 at night and hangs with us for quite some time, and a long time. And I said, Father, if there's ever anything I could do for you, you know, please let me know. Um, I'll always be in your debt for how you cared for my wife and looked over her. And he said, well, Bill, as a matter of fact, uh, there's something you can do for me now. You know, um, when I see a young woman like this battling this vicious disease, it really makes me sad and it makes me want to have a drink, and I have a problem with that. So say a prayer for me, that I'll make it back tonight, 
to my bed without stopping at a few bars on the way. I said, Father, you got it. I say this prayer. The next thing you know, Julie had recovered. Thank God everything was good. And I was making another career change now, moving out to California. And I'm with Siebel Systems, a software company in California. And my friends from the East Coast tell me to turn on the television set. It was 9-11. And like the first reported loss was Father Michael Judge. And it was Father Michael Judge who was with me in the hospital and who literally carried me through one of the really more difficult experiences of my life. And my wife wrote a beautiful letter to the New Yorker magazine that was published in honor of the exchange that we had with Father Michael Judge. So there's angels everywhere and there's amazing things. And when you get hit with thunderbolts, people will most be judged for not how they got knocked down because we all will get knocked down. Sometimes it'll be almost devastating to the point where you can't even imagine how you're ever going to get back up again. But I can tell you right now, you will get back up again. And the main thing is, as a winner, whether it's a competitive sale or it's life's most intricate challenges, get back up. And believe in yourself, believe in your family, believe in your dreams, and move forward. And move forward with grace and class and confidence and recognize that no matter how difficult it is, there's somebody with a set of circumstances somewhere that's even more difficult than yours. And by having that level of empathy and compassion for other people, the world picks you up and gives you all the empathy, the compassion, and love that you need. And it becomes this virtuous cycle of goodness. And I really believe in the end, that's what really does make life worth living. Powerful, powerful, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> <laughs> My favorite side, <laughs> guys in the wings. Um, so we have just a little bit of time left, and I, I was visualizing how I would try to end this uh, with you. And um, first and foremost, the gratitude I have for our relationship that uh, I want to thank Darren again publicly for just how we showed up at the right time and the right place. Thank um, you. Both Deb and I felt very connected to you and Julie thank from the start. Thank you very much. And, uh, this is a winner's dream for me yes. to have you here as the CEO of the largest software company in the world. Thank you. To be here on this stage is just, it's awe-inspiring. Thank you so much. So I thought I would ask uh, two questions. What is Bill McDermott's definition of success? Well, I have, you know, made it clear that I believe a life worth living and a life well lived to be a true success is best seen in the eyes of your significant other or your spouse and your children. I don't think that you could ever call yourself a success unless you've given everything that you have to the most enduring cause, which is your family. And that to me is the number one definition of success. You can fail at business, but in my humble opinion, the one thing you never want to fail at is your family. I also believe, yeah. thank you, thank you. I really do, honey. 
I also, um, I also believe you've got to be a good friend to have good friends. There's just something so important about being a good friend and being a person of, of honor and giving of yourself, your trust and your loyalty to other people. Because if you can build that enduring uh, love with your friends and your family, it lifts you um, up so much. The other thing about being a success is your own self-image. So many people today get themselves messed up because they're jealous of other people, they speak poorly of people behind their back, they see the worst in people and they propagate that instead of saying there's something good about her, I see something in her, there's something about him that has real potential and they are seeking constantly to see the good in people. And I think by constantly seeking out the good in people, your own self-image, it really rises and lifts as a result. Yeah. Also, if I take it to a business sense, that's my definition of success. But in a business sense, you know, I reinvented along with my 70, actually 35,000 colleagues at the time, the strategy of our company in 2010. And basically, you have to have a, a higher purpose than just day-to-day -day commerce to really make a company special. And we wanted to help the world run better and improve people's lives. Because we felt that we helped companies run better, that was our authentic soul, but also to improve people's lives. Because we weren't that good at giving a good user experience or making the software easy or simple or beautiful. That wasn't our strength, we were bad at that. So I felt that we could combine making that world run better, because we did make the best software, but also that we could help the world and people and improve their lives where they were happy. Uh, and they got things done that they couldn't get done before. So here's what that resulted in. It resulted in a whole rethink of the strategy. You could do this at an individual level or you could do this at a company level. I basically asked a tough question. If we weren't here tomorrow, would anybody care? Are we relevant? Like, do we actually really matter? Forget about the money. Do we matter? And that led us to answer a few questions. Yes, we do, because thousands of companies all over the world wouldn't run if it wasn't for us in multiple industries. But we were a leader in a certain space, but the world was going in a different direction. We had to do the core, but we had to recognize that data was doubling in the world every 18 months, so you had to have a new way of processing information in real time, a live system strategy. Things were going to the cloud because people wanted technology that was easy and beautiful to consume at a low cost with the constant upgrades and technical innovations. And the big thing that I think Facebook taught you is yes, social networking at a human or a personal level is really important, but it's going to be even more important in the next decade between businesses. The idea of collaboration between companies in a global economy where supply chains are gonna be all over the world, not obviously just in the town that we grew up in. That became the genesis of a new strategy. So what that did for us by thinking differently is we doubled the revenue of the company in five years. We more than doubled the market cap of the company in five years. We more than doubled the number of employees in the company. And we quintupled the number of customers in the company just by thinking differently. But the commerce was preceded by a higher purpose. 
and therefore people could get around the vision, could get excited about the strategy because it meant something bigger than the commerce. And I think this is something people have to spend time on in your own lives, in your own goals. 90% of the people in the world don't have goals. Only one in 10 actually write them down and stick to them. Next to my bedside table, I still have the goal sheets that I put in the book from jobs that I had 15, 20 years ago. And some of them I wrote on the back of a piece of paper when I was on an American Airlines getting a Diet Coke or something. And at that time, the stewardess had the piece of paper and the pen and I would just write them down because it was in my head. And then next to my bedside table. So I think the more you think about the customer and where the world is going and you can shape yourself and your strategy for yourself or your company around that, the more likely you are to meet success in uncommon ways. Because the common ways are everybody's business. Right. But doing the things, just like we started the interview, <clears throat> that your competition has chosen not to do or can't do, but meaningful solutions exist for your customer if you can put your imagination to it. And that level of thinking, that critical thinking, that depth in the detail that you put forward that someone else chose not to or doesn't want to is the difference between being the best in the world at what you do for a living or at least having a chance to do that right. and being an also-ran. To me, settling for second when first is available is uninteresting. <laughs> Getting second when you gave it everything you had to be the best in the world and you learn something and you're even better and you're coming back even stronger next time, now that is success. That's awesome. Awesome. <clears throat> Thank you. So I want to uh, uh, end this on, on one final note. And um, this book is chocked full of simple ideas that can make a powerful difference. And um, you're a caring, charismatic dude that loves to win. Um, if today were the last day that you could give a piece of advice to anybody in the world, and from this moment on, you would never be able to share yes. that advice again, what would be the piece of advice you would share? In the book, I dedicated the book to my mother, and I say in the opening of the book, everything I was, am, or ever will be, I owe it all to you. And I do. My number one piece of advice is don't forget where you came from. Because there is something that is so genuine, authentic, and unique about that self. And somewhere along the line, we go to schools, we do jobs, we have been affected by life's many challenges, and it's so hard to remember that true inner voice that made you, you. And my mother told me, and I was reminded of this when I was at a round table of 30 women in Germany that read the book and loved the book. They said to me, what was the most important thing that you actually think gave you the essence of you? 
My mother told me that the best part of you is you. What's interesting is the one woman that was in that round table actually took that um, out of the book and put it on her refrigerator. And she has two little girls. And she tells it to her girls every day that the best part of them is them. And I think that you know, if you can just be you and be peaceful, passionate, and hopeful about what you bring to the world, you just loosen it up so much. Like you don't need the PowerPoints, you don't need the corporate speak, you just like get such peace with that voice. So whoever gave it to you, get it back and then put it into the modern practice of all the things that you've learned and all the dreams that you have and be a winner. I say to you today, keep dreaming. Don't give up on the dreams because nothing I ever achieved in my life ever came to me without first having a crystal clear dream and then a plan that was put together, simple plan, to get it. Um, so the best part of you is you. My number one piece of advice, be you. Thank you very much, Todd. Thank you. Thank you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Let's give it up for Bill McDermott. Thank you. Hey, thanks for being part of today's episode. I've got a special gift for you I want to make sure you are aware of. I just released a 25-page ebook entitled The Five Irrefutable Principles of a High-Performance Business. These five principles are game-changing. There's a lot of methods towards success, but if you ignore the principles, it's very, very hard to know that those methods will work. Go to the show notes below, just click on the link, download this 25-page ebook, and see what kind of impact it can make in your business and your life.